Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. It's not just the case of saying, well, the people who talk to the customer, i.e. customer service people, we need to make sure they're well-trained, they've got the resources. I mean, that's a part of it, but it actually starts all the way up at the vision and the mission of the company. Is it truly aligned to what its customer base today and tomorrow is serving? Once you've got the vision and the mission right, then to me, it's about leadership. And it's certainly my experience, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, but it's very rare to see a company that's focused on the customers and then you meet its leaders and they're not. You know, and I have lots of retail experience of this where working in franchises, I could walk into a Volkswagen showroom, a McDonald's restaurant, and within about 10 minutes, I could tell you their CX score or a customer's NPS score just by meeting the leadership team there. And I think finally, the missing link in a lot of businesses where I think now is being finally realized is employee and customer experience and how do they interact together. So quite often, it's been the sense of, okay, we need to make sure our employees are doing the right thing by the customers. But the question before that is, are we doing the right thing by our employees? Are we empowering them? Are we setting them up for success? You know, there's always the whole thing of smile while you're giving people like a terrible experience. You know, it doesn't help anybody, right? It just burns your people out. So to kind of summarize, to me, the shift from customer service to experience has been alignment of the organization, all the way from its vision, leadership, employees, and then ultimately what the customer experiences. I think what most leaders understand is that it's not just a very tactical measure of what's happened. It's a key input into capital allocation, into strategic planning, into the entire vision and the purpose of the company. If you don't intuitively understand those things, and again, not at a superficial level, but really detailed level, and where it's going to go, how are you making those bets? It'd be the equivalent of us going, hey, we're going to build a brand new factory, but we don't know anything about lean manufacturing. But we've got this one number that we kind of know that it's a good indicator, and we'll put it in our annual report, but we'll build this factory, and we just hope that, you know, our lean is at 28 rather than 27, we're smashing this out. And that's what I think, to me, when I hear really strategic leaders talk about this and they get it, they're using customer experience as a key leading indicator input into their, like, serious decision-making. Their algorithms are so strong. They can really show you information that is so interesting to you. It's one of the major time sucks of all the apps because it really just pulls people in and, and pulls their attention. And so, you know, you can use apps to help you with that. The other part that we often recommend is sort of leaning into JOMO instead of FOMO. So the joy of missing out instead of the fear of missing out. So FOMO actually has come up only in the last couple of years. It is, it's a rather new term. You know, the idea is that, you know, you're watching your friends have a party online and you're like, I'm not there. I wasn't even invited, right? And that sinking feeling of not being a part of something. Or maybe you have competitors who just won an award or something and it has that sort of sinking feeling rather than lifting feeling. Whereas with Jomo, it's the idea of kind of, you know, like how can you find joy and be okay? Be like, no, I wasn't on that WhatsApp conversation and that's okay. I actually, I was out for a walk with my dog instead, you know, and things like that. And really starting to lean into things that bring you joy outside of, you know, social media.
AI is a huge can of worms when it comes to ethics. There's a lot of people who are weighing in on different sides of it and all quite valid in belief. And so it's interesting around AI. So AI, one of the first things to think about when you think about artificial intelligence, it's a way of organizing data. You know, it's basically have these data sets, like here's what Katrina is doing online, but oh, here's what a thousand people are doing online. And, you know, okay, wait, we can see when they do this, the next step is usually this. So we'll just do it for them. You know, things like that. There's really good things that come out of algorithms. Like I even said, you know, some people would argue that the TikTok algorithms are like, thank you for finding things that I love, constantly entertaining me, right? And, you know, Netflix and a lot of things that we use in our day-to-day are already using AI to give you suggestions for things that you'd like. And, you know, where the problems around the ethics come in, there's, you know, and there's a lot of conversations going on. There's a lot of conversation going on around the idea of AI bias. But it is one of those things that's fundamental. Whoever's creating it, man, woman, you know, whatever culture is going to have bias. We're all human beings and how we create things and see things is always going to have parameters and boundaries. So how do we kind of govern that to make sure that we're not excluding people and continue to perpetuate that? Because it's one of those things where, again, it's really important to have a lot of diverse people involved in these decision-making processes to ensure that, you know, we're not accidentally discriminating against people and people don't even realize It's sort of a quiet thing going on in the background of, you know, this thing that's going on and nobody even notices that that's the reason. You know, that's kind of what basically one one of the fundamental things that I have around AI is, is that we have to be really careful with the data we're using and how we're distributing it. And also, I could keep going, actually, I just got excited there, but, you know, making sure we're not stealing data and all that. It's such a temptation for companies who have all that first party digital data about what their customers are doing. It's such a temptation just to kind of rely on that, not go any further, but you never really get to the why behind the what if you just do that and you never get to understand what people are doing when they're not on your platform. So that's where involving those different facets of uh, consumer insight come from. Looking beyond the noise to find the insights and the story. I mean, that's what we do as sort of professionals, right? Or ultimately... We're not just looking at data, you know, we're trying to answer a question, right? We're trying to answer a client brief. And so being a good consumer insight professional or marketing strategist or marketing analyst is about understanding what that signal is amongst the noise, the bits that are relevant to the question you're trying to answer and not being afraid to park that other stuff, leave that other stuff to the side, as interesting as it might be. For me, it's um, joining the dots between two pieces of information in a way that's relevant to the client's brief. And being relevant to the client's brief is the critical part, right? You know, like it's something can still be an insight, but if it's not relevant to the question you're answering, just leave it to one side, put it in the appendix, for goodness sake. I think this is the issue with us being in the consumer insights profession. We're curious by our nature and we love discovering things about consumers, about the way we behave, about why, about what people are doing. And, you know, our temptation is always to show everything to our client, you know, come to them with everything we've learned in a project. That's counterproductive, usually. We really need to limit ourselves to the insights that are relevant to the client's brief that are going to help them make critical business decisions and ultimately become more profitable. I would love to be able to go back in time and redo some of those big projects with the tools that I've got at my disposal today. It'd be interesting to see how the outputs would change. I like to think we did a pretty solid job back then, but I'm also pretty sure if we'd been able to analyze social media data and third-party product reviews at scale and bring in you know, more behavioral science elements and, and all the rest of it, I am pretty sure 
we could have elevated things and taken things to another level. So yeah, I've got to say that, look, we can respond to clients' briefs with more certainty than ever today because we're able to review a broader spectrum of data and analyze it with just many different approaches. Your goal should always be resonance, right? And now the way that you package and deliver it can help you achieve greater reach, right? Having a strong hook on your LinkedIn post, but then the core idea that you bring people into has to be one that they're chewing on afterwards, that they're thinking about, that they might mention to a colleague when they're at happy hour. If you're just aiming for reach without saying, I'm going to put a new idea or a new story or something of value into the world, you're not actually accomplishing much of anything with the stories that you're telling. You know, the goal of marketing shouldn't just be to game the system to get more vanity metrics, more impressions. It should be to deliver value to people and to help them in some core way. If you're B2B, help them do their job better, help them get that next promotion, but deliver it to a way that isn't going to feel like work, right? But that's actually going to feel like fun, entertaining, and intellectually stimulating. Having someone inside of your company or who represents your company that can connect to your audience is really, really key. Like the biggest piece of advice to give to most B2B companies is, you know, who do you have inside of your company that you can develop as a creator that represents your brand, that serves as that personification of everything that you believe in, that voice of the stories that you're going to tell, because you're going to get 10 times the engagement and resonance that way than if everything is coming out from a faceless brand handle that's, you know, coming out from blogs, like signed by the name of your company. In my book, we have this idea of the four elements of great storytelling. The first is relatability. So when you have a storyteller you can relate to, who's going to connect to you through their own personal stories and experience, that's really key. Second is tension, which we already talked about. There's this idea of fluency. So the idea of making your stories just really easy to engage with. In video, right, that is a lot of those quick cuts, that action, those people off the bat. But in writing in general, it's not trying to make yourself sound smart, right? Sound academic, sound overly formal. We want to engage with content that has the voice and colloquialisms of real people. So those are some of the really key things we want to play on. And if you want a bonus fourth one, it's novelty. So are you putting new ideas out into the world? Are you showing people stories, characters they might not necessarily have seen before? My one experience growing up had been going to Europe and going to the vineyards and actually there, which has still stood and informed me in my kind of approach to moderation now, having wine at dinner tables, lunch tables, all day gatherings was a cross-generational thing. It was not that they were encouraging kids to drink wine, but it wasn't hidden. And I think that's definitely part of shame around alcohol. In Europe, it's very much part of the culinary experience. And we would go to the wineries with my parents and actually there they had a wine for children, which sounds really kind of crazy, but it was a 3% alcohol wine for kind of teenagers, I guess, if you will. And so you'd sip this very sweet liquid under guidance of your parents, and you knew alcohol wasn't something that you drank on your own. But it was just interesting how different cultures approach permissibility and education rather than kind of sneaking off and drinking a bottle of vodka with your teenage friends in you know the back lane. The question of alcohol, which is a ritual that is so deeply rooted, it's so innate to culture across the world. 
I think 7,000 years ago was the first BC is the first recorded alcoholic spirit in China that they have on record. I mean, that's how old the ritual is of coming together over alcohol. But we have more science now and we have a lot of questions about our health and we want to live longer. You know, there's that guy I've been following who wants to live forever. But alcohol is a toxic. It's toxic to your system. And so we just have to understand just like there's other stuff that we consume that are not healthy, but we consume them in moderation. That really is the conversation that people are having. I want to have a good time. I want to be here for longer. I've seen the fragility of my health and my health, the health of others. And cancers are only increasing. The cures are increasing as well, which is amazing. But there's so many new cancers and we're all looking for answers. And one thing we can modify is the amount of alcohol we're consuming. The non-all category and alcohol category primarily has caused so much heartache and pain to so many people. And people are really suffering with kind of how their body and how their mind interact with alcohol. And there hasn't been enough kind of talked about in that space. So we're really solving a problem, which when it comes back to insights and connecting with the consumers, no one needs another whiskey or a vodka or a tequila. You know, I always love looking at the packaging and looking at the stories that people have. And I still enjoy alcohol. I love going to the distilleries. There's so much craft but we don't need more. The shelves are already weighed down with so many. But what they do need is alternatives because they don't need to drink every night and they don't need to drink a whole bottle in a night. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.